There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. And the truth shall set you free! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Great moments are born in great opportunity. All right, thanks for joining us again for another episode of the On Justice podcast. I'm Jordan David, founding partner of Fishery David. My other and better half, John Fisher, can't join us today. He's in the VI putting in some work, but we have the opportunity to welcome Caitlin Jones as a guest today. And before I have her introduce herself, for those out there listening who may be unfamiliar, let me give her a brief, uh, let me give a brief background of who she is and, and why we've asked her to come on. I knew Caitlin as a professional because we both started out our careers on opposite sides of the aisle in Miami-Dade County. She was an assistant state attorney working in the misdemeanor division at the time, and I was an assistant public defender working in the same division. So we had an opportunity to literally work up cases, but on the other side of each other and try and reach negotiated resolutions and compromise where we could have it, and other times having to try cases against each other. Since then, I've obviously left the PD's office. She's left the state attorney's office, and she's actually moved on not just to greener pastures in terms of practice area, but she's actually moved on geographically. She spent some time in California. I believe now she's currently residing in D.C., which she'll talk to us about. But Caitlin is currently a shareholder at the Pettit, Cone, and Gracia Lutz and Dolan firm. I'm probably oversimplifying here a lot, but she practices primarily in the areas of business litigation, civil litigation, and professional liability. And so because of that, there's some professional responsibility and ethics components. And Caitlin's actually one of the few people who's really starting to speak openly in the burgeoning area of the intersection between artificial intelligence, the practice of law, and where our rules of professional responsibility and ethics all shake out. So without further ado, Caitlin, thanks for joining us or me. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan. I'm really happy to be here with you. So are you joining us from DC or California, just so I know? DC. I'm in I'm in Northern Virginia, but my office is in San Diego and I work full time out of the San Diego office. And so let me ask you, in, in the post-COVID world where work from home and hybrid has become the norm, um, did you have the benefit of that before the pandemic or is this something that you've kind of just as a holdover from the pandemic? I think the pandemic opened up this whole new opportunity for lawyers. Um, I was located in San Diego for years at our office and uh, my husband got a job opportunity in D.C., and we would never have been able to do that, I think, before the pandemic. We were not doing, you know, remote depositions and remote court hearings, and it was the rare time that we would call into court. And most of my practice is depositions, court hearings, things like that. So I think the pandemic gave us a, a brand new opportunity, and I'm really grateful for it. Awesome. Well, we're grateful to have you on. I, I alluded earlier that you and I got to know each other as professionals as we were brand new attorneys down in Miami-Dade County. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I think this is a good platform for someone like you. We've never had on that I'm aware of yet, a former state attorney from, or assistant state attorney from Miami-Dade County. And I think they put out the best that there is. So maybe if you could spend a little time speaking about the value that you have now with the benefit of hindsight, looking back as to how that helped shape your career. Absolutely. I, you know, I look on those years as some of the most formative in my career. I think uh, trying cases right out the gate, there's only a few places you can do that. It's really the public defender's office and the state attorney's office. And I think most of us who ended up there were there because we wanted to try cases. And so, you know, in that sense, I got 30 some cases, 30 some trials within the first two years. And that was experience I never would have had. And I think that has given me the confidence as a tenure attorney 
you know, to, to try a case for a client without um, a lot of additional support and just having the confidence to go into a courtroom and be prepared, understand my position and speak and try a case for my client. I learned that uh, through being thrown into the fire at the state attorney's office. So I, I'm very, very grateful for that experience. You just use the term preparedness. And I have to say, because I, I look back, I have fond memories of many people I worked with, like as colleagues at the PD's office, and many people I had to had to work with or against, so to speak, who were in the state attorney's office. And where I could, because it was my job, I would try and leverage those. Everybody was overworked. Everybody was spread too thin. This is not unique to any particular person. It's just the nature of the system. There's too many cases, not enough people. But I could sense there were some people that were just getting by from a preparedness. They were they had a surface level understanding of each file. That banker's box contained a lot of information, maybe 30% of which was digested. And those were more opportune to either maybe have a motion heard that might be dispositive or get a better deal because of someone being unaware. You were never that opponent. And I mean that no. in the, as a nice compliment because it's coming from the bottom of my heart. I never looked at, I said, oh, Caitlin's got the file. That means we could, no, it was always, I better know my shit. And if I'm coming to her for a deal, I better have my ducks in a row because I knew you were never scared to try a case and could do so competently. So you've, you've left the state attorney's office now years ago. One of the things you and I share in common after leaving those offices is we both took another bar exam to get licensed in another jurisdiction, which is not something many people ever do, understandably so. It's a bit annoying and taxing, but I haven't done it for California. What was that process like realizing that you had to undergo it again? Yeah, and I appreciate your kind words, and I feel the same about you. I, I always enjoy trying a case with you because I knew it was going to be, you know, fun and exciting and difficult and challenging and all the things that you want the practice of law to be. So, you know, right back at you on that. Um, as far as taking the California bar, it was hard, you know. It, it was hard to uh, take another bar after some five years of practice and hard to get back into study mode. But I will say that having practiced for a few years really, really helped. And I just saw the law very differently than I did as a law student. So I think that, you know, taking another bar later in your career is certainly less of a hurdle than it was right at the beginning. That's a good perspective to have. Going into the Georgia bar exam, I didn't have that, but coming out of it, I did because I didn't know what to expect. But there was definitely a few sighs of relief as I kept leafing through pages like, oh, this is a bit more familiar, less intimidating. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get commercial paper as a topic, so crisis averted. So I don't think I've ever had to take that. So I know, but <laughs> studying for it alone, I still have the scars, I assure you. Um, so you relocate out to to San Diego. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose not just a particular firm or an opportunity there? Because I know there was an inter intermediate step after you left the state attorney's office, you went to a really great firm, more of a boutique firm down in the South Florida area. You worked for a really good partner, mentor, but eventually you relocated out to the West Coast. Can you talk about the shift generally and then as specific as you want going from prosecuting cases on behalf of the people of the state of Florida to maybe prosecuting a case on the behalf of an individual or a company or defending it, but it's a whole different animal civilly. Yeah, um, it's a big change, you know, learning civil procedure all over again, because you just don't do that in criminal court. It was a big change, but the perspective really isn't that different. You know, you, you might be offended by this, but I always used to think that the best public defender is a good prosecutor because you you're the first line of defense as to whether that person is charged appropriately or charged too much or whether they make it to trial or not. And so I always took my duties as a prosecutor very seriously and thought of myself as a defender, not of the client or the person who is being prosecuted, but of the system in general. And so that kind of gave me a defense-minded mindset. And so shift 
shifting over to most of what I do now is defense. I do some plaintiff's work when it is business related, but largely I'm doing uh, defense of companies who've been sued, defense of lawyers who've been sued for malpractice, and defense of insurance agents who've been sued for malpractice. And so that defense mindset kind of carried through and you know, I still see myself as somebody who uh, works to put the other side to their burden, which is really what you learn in the prosecuting and defending context. Yeah, I think that's a totally fair assessment. I haven't been a prosecutor, but at the end of the day, who's going to understand having to meet a burden or holding someone to it other than someone who was a prosecutor and had to meet the highest burden under the law time after time? So I can definitely see that. The area of professional responsibility, I mean, can I oversimplify for a moment here and talk about it in the legal malpractice realm, or are you also doing like the ethical kind of administrative prosecution defense as well? Um, I do a little bit of bar defense. Uh, it's not really a big part of my practice, but when it comes along, especially for an existing client, we do that. Uh, my firm has a bigger bar defense practice. I'm sort of just getting into it, but mostly legal malpractice. I'm doing probably 60% legal malpractice, but sure, oversimplify. No, no, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go too far. It is, it's, it's a very important area of the law. I've had to retain uh, what I'll call bar counsel or, you know, it comes up, issues come up, clients make accusations, things happen. And when that happens, good lawyers know you want the best lawyer. And so I think it's commendable that you do that work because in many ways, it might be the most important work that lawyers can do for one another. But can you talk a little bit about how you even got into that? Because that's not like a natural analog to criminal, whether it's prosecution or defense. So. Yeah, you're right. It's not. Um, I, I was practicing general business litigation at the boutique firm that you mentioned and, and Coral Gables and, you know, really enjoyed that. And then when I was moving out to San Diego, I was really looking for a mentor. Um, my mentor at Divine Goodman was Larry Goodman. And unfortunately, he passed away untimely of a um, brain tumor. And he taught me a lot. And I, I really grew more as an attorney from listening to Larry and talking with him over our table about our cases than I did from working at any particular firm. So I was really looking for a mentor. Uh, so I was looking to grow under an attorney that I thought was an exceptional trial attorney who had the right ethics and the right mindset and was really, really good at what he did. And so I found my partner, Doug Pettit, and um, it was actually the only place I applied. I, I really wanted to work for him and uh, be the kind of attorney that he is. And thankfully, it was a good fit. And uh, it's been it's been a good result. I think I've learned a lot and uh, really appreciate getting to work there. I think having mentors, because usually there's more than one. People serve different roles in your life. There's different seasons. Uh, you've been fortunate to have multiple, it sounds like. Uh, obviously, I knew Larry. I don't. I don't know your current or you know your your most recent mentor, but can you talk a little bit about paying that forward at all, if if and when, and how you find opportunities, whether it's through bar organizations or even internally in the firm with a younger lawyer, and this the, the importance that you see of passing down what was passed down to you? Yeah, um, you really hit the nail on the head. I think mentorship really is how lawyers just become better and become exceptional. I think you just have to follow the footsteps of somebody that you admire because there's so many ways to be good at what we do. Um, but I do actually put a lot of emphasis and a lot of time on paying it back. And so I uh, sort of oversee the associates in our practice group. I meet with them uh, monthly, one-on-one, -on -one, just to talk about their cases. Uh, I, I try to be liberal in both praise and criticism because I think that's the only way you really learn. I, I try to give as much feedback as I can about things that they're doing well and things that they're not doing as well. Um, I, I, I told one of them the other day, you know, 
it's just a friend if they tell you that you're doing great all the time. It's a, it's, it's a mentor that tells you when you're not meeting the expectations and how you can meet those. And so I really try to be that for the next generation of lawyers. And I think it's just such an invaluable gift when it connects and clicks with somebody that, you know, that really sets you on the right path. So I do try to try to do that for them. I think that's remarkably insightful. Uh, and I think people on the opposite side of the equation with you would probably say they're grateful for getting what amounts to honest and direct feedback. Because at the end of the day, nobody grows if we stay stagnant. Nobody grows if we keep them comfortable in the same little cocoon. And so you need to give good and bad feedback, whatever the feedback is, just given and let people choose what they do with it. Some will yeah, get so. better and some will keep doing the same, but at least you know you gave them the benefit of exactly where they stand. So that's interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit, if we can, about something you probably don't spend a ton of professional hours doing as compared to case-related stuff. But since I have you, I want to steal the opportunity to do it, which is to discuss the intersection of artificial intelligence and the practice of law, and more specifically, some ethical considerations that are out there. So for me, as somebody who, before I was ever a lawyer, I was an entrepreneur in different ways, part of it is, I think, our generation, and part of it is just how my brain is wired. I'm excited by being on the bleeding edge of seeing new innovations, especially in the technological sector. Rarely, if ever, can I think of a time where I had the opportunity to at least choose to embrace those innovations and make an immediate impact in my life as a professional. Usually it's one of personal gain, right? A new cell phone, a new smart TV, whatever. That stuff doesn't affect your professional life. But here we're starting to see with natural language processing and huge machine learning models, we're starting to see things like legal research, document drafting, even just the, the actual management of a case file, whether it's deadline tracking or communications internally, we're starting to see all of these tools kind of reveal themselves. But I think this is one of those we need to pump the brakes and really make sure that we don't overstep. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the issues you're seeing and how you approach them? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's remarkable. You know, I, I get really excited about AI because I just think it's it's the same kind of shift maybe that lawyers saw when switching from book research to Lexis or Westlaw. It was, you know, well, why would you use the internet? You can't trust what you see there. Go to your published reporter. That's the right way to do it. But then a generation of law students learned to use Lexis. And all of a sudden, uh, if you were using your published reporters, you actually may not have been keeping up with your obligations to be comfortable with the technologies that we use in the law, right? So at least in California, our professional rules do require lawyers to be relatively knowledgeable about the technologies that we have. And so I think we're right on the cusp of that time where, you know, you're, you're not, not competent for not using AI, but there will be a time in the near future when I think lawyers will, will have to be comfortable with it and we'll have to understand the different programs that are available, how to craft a question for, you know, a GPT type model in order to get the answer that you're looking for. So I think it's fascinating. I love it. I think there's a ton of concerns. I agree with you about pumping the brakes. I think um, for me, honestly, the biggest concern really isn't privacy and security, even though I think that's up there. It's not bias and discrimination, even though that's also up there. For me, the biggest concern is that young lawyers don't learn how to lawyer properly. And I, you know, when we look about, think about our firm using AI and delving into this and perhaps, you know, um, moving forward with one of the big platforms, our, our sort of baseline is that none of the young associates get to use it. Because if you're having something write your briefs for you, then you're just not doing the work that you need to be good at what we do. So that's my 
I think that's a really, really good point that I don't think I've ever thought about in that way, which is like even assuming the best of intentions and let's put the the ethical considerations and up, you can use it. There's no privacy, trying to climb privilege issues. You're right, though. If you're just starting your legal career and you immediately jump to these, they're shortcuts. They, They may be more efficient inevitably, but they're still shortcuts if you if you start with that and you don't know how the sausage gets made, so to speak, you've never had to grind out the laborious task of like issue spotting and then really digging through the cases and then finding out which ones are really and distilling it all down. That's a really good point. You're, you're almost doing yourself as a professional a disservice. And then in turn, that necessarily means perhaps your client, but definitely your firm who hired you not to become just a, a query master and put, put prompts into a machine and see what comes out the other side, because it doesn't take a law degree to do that. That's a really interesting perspective. We've had Mitch Jackson on here twice. He's a lawyer licensed in uh, California. He does some mediation work. He used to do, or still does some plaintiff personal injury work. And he, like me, I think is very excited by some of the tools, but he, like you, sees like as much as we want to embrace them, there are these things we need to be aware about. He speaks about them. The You mentioned chat GPT. And I think that's like starting to become part of the normal lexicon, even if you're not a lawyer, you've just heard it so much. I think eventually it'll probably become synonymous with like a Google means search kind of thing. But one of the things I realized with ChatGPT, putting aside that it can be wildly inaccurate when performing research, et cetera, is actually the privacy considerations. So our firm now, very recently, we have adopted subscriptions to the uh, co-counsel, the, you know, specific to lawyers. They've been around for a while, Case Tech as a company. And we did that in lieu of ChatGPT. And we specifically say, don't use ChatGPT in part because ChatGPT is as much learning and taking from you as you are from it, right? It's just this huge platform where you deposit data into it. It's You don't know if it's going to use that and spin off an answer somewhere else. And so people need to be careful not to put privileged information and frankly, not to put anything that even could be arguably work product, you're just handing it over. Whereas co-counsel, at least by their terms, and knock on wood, they abide by them. I have no reason to believe they don't. They are uh, more cognizant of the risks in that. And so they kind of create, and I talked to Mitch a little bit about this, these little silos where you can almost freely upload documents, create your own repositories, query those private repositories. So it feels a little bit more secure in that way. But even still, there's a part of me that's like, how secure is it? Because if that thing gets uh, cracked, you know, where are we at? And so almost by an, over, an unhealthy dose of paranoia, I find myself using it to augment legal research because nothing is unique about that. Whether, you know, somebody hacked my Westlaw searches, they wouldn't know anything about a case, no different than co-counsel. And I still don't use 80% of the tools co-counsel offers because I don't really want to upload depot transcripts or a medical record or some things like that. Um have you had an opportunity at least be outside of your firm to speak to the broader market of lawyers out there, whether it be through bar organizations or whatever? And if so, what's kind of the the reception you're getting from people? Are people very eager? Are they more hesitant? What? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. People are very eager. I do speak on AI issues, mostly through um, insurers who offer CLEs, continuing legal education programs for California lawyers, and uh, they're very excited about it. And I think what I'm seeing a lot is that lawyers come to the presentations not knowing anything other than perhaps the word chat GPT. And that that is really what they know about AI. 
So they don't understand large language models. They don't understand, you know, all of these different things that go into a deep learning versus machine learning. So when I speak on that, I give a little bit of background on that just to help people really understand the words that we use, because it is important to understand the difference between, you know, like you're saying, co-counsel, which does not teach its model or train its model on the data that you input versus chat GPT, which in its actual, you know, security and privacy um, white paper, it says that it trains its model on everything that's inputted into it. So if you're putting your your best work into ChatGPT, you're actually teaching it to give better answers to other lawyers, uh, including your opposing counsels, right? So I completely agree with you. I think ChatGPT is not a secure platform and nobody should be uploading client information, work product into it. And I think that the, you know, Lexis AI and case text uh, those programs which are putting out new good AI programs, they are saying what you're saying, that they're not training the model on your client's data. And I, I think we have no choice but to believe that and to hope that that's true. Yeah, and I haven't seen any chinks in the armor to give me pause. It's more just, it's still so new to me. So it's it's an unsettling thing to say, hey, upload this into a private portal. Although at the end of the day, we kind of do that implicitly with a lot of online document repositories, the case management anyway. Um, yeah, relativity. But on the AI front of it, you know, I have listened to people speak about it. I've seen short clips about it, and I've read what I'll just call our articles by other lawyers. And I think there's like this unnecessary hesitance because they people feel like it's a fad when the truth is, well, I don't say the truth. My truth, my interpretation of it is it's a tidal wave that's here and you can either learn to surf and safely navigate it or you're just going to get swallowed up by it. And that applies, I think, equally to the lawyers who are practicing. I think it applies to court staff like clerks, which inevitably they'll find a way to implement it, and non-lawyer support staff like paralegals and legal assistants. I think it's like one of these things where if you get ahead of it, you get conversant, you know how to use it, it can augment your life and make you better. But if you don't, don't be surprised if you get swallowed up by the crashing wave, because it doesn't it feel like there's a sense of inevitability here? I completely agree with you. And I have said every time I've presented on AI, I have said the same thing, that lawyers who do not use or learn to use AI will be left behind without a doubt, just like lawyers who insisted on researching and published reporters are now actually derelict in their duties because those are not updated as frequently as our online repositories. So you cannot safely and comfortably cite a published reporter case anymore from a hard copy book. And at some point, we're going to be in the same boat with AI, where if you're not using AI to compare your opponent's briefs, you know, you may be at a disadvantage. And, and how do you explain that to your client, that you're not competent in the technologies that, you know, some 23-year-old fresh out of law school grad is competent in using? So I totally agree with you. I think lawyers are excited about it. I think they want to learn, um, I think, you know, much to the credit of case text and co-counsel and the other programs that are doing it, they do demos for lawyers where they sort of teach you how to use the program, which I think is right. great. Um, I don't think it's ever going to replace us, but I do think lawyers who can't use it will be replaced by those who can. I think to the extent we want to fantasize uh, about these nightmare situations where it replaces the entire profession, I think it's never going to happen. But the last place it will ever happen is the in-courtroom trial attorneys uh, yeah. Even if even if jurors aren't safe, maybe one day we have robot jurors, but I really do believe that the, the in-court presentation of argument, oral advocacy is, is probably the, the safest bastion. But mm -hmm. I was thinking about what you were saying uh, in terms of you made a comment, did you did you check your opponent's brief or whatever? 
for years, even when I was just starting out, I mean, there's all these different ways to phrase it, but I'd hear these older lawyers say, oh, does anybody have a go by for X, Y, or Z? You know, some boilerplate motion, some something I can use as a template, essentially. And it always, it didn't bother me, but it always like made the hair on the back of my neck stand because I'm like, how do you know what you're even getting was quality when you got it? And I've okay. seen people take go-bys, you know, control F, replace. They don't really do any independent thought or research and they just spit it back out and on and on the wheel goes. And sometimes a judge catches it. Sometimes your opponent catches it. Many times they don't. But to your point, two years ago, I think it's about two years ago, we've been a Westlaw firm. I just prefer it over Lexus. So for legal research, that's what we use. About two years ago, they came out with a, uh, another product in their line where you could check your work or an opponent's. You could literally upload a brief or a motion, whatever it is in Word file or PDF of your own product or the other side. It'll put together a table of authorities. It'll put together all other relevant cases, maybe do the uh, shepherdizing, so to speak, for you, give you a, sh a shortcut there. So I've been using that for years and it's become my, my new normal. I mean, I don't really even, it's hard to remember life before that to have to manually pull every case. But then I run into people and they don't even know these tools exist. And so to your point, and I guess one mind that I teed up a little bit, it's like over the next three to five years, I think that gap between those that know and use and are willing to learn and those that are completely in the dark, some people are just going to get left way behind. I totally agree. I love those uh, those features. I try to be an early adopter of technology to the extent that I can so that, like you're saying, you know, we don't get left behind. And, you know, I'm certainly not the youngest generation now that's just grown up on smartphones. And so I do feel like those of us in our 30s and 40s have a duty to really keep sharp with this stuff and, and figure it out and learn it and practice it. So I've never had to, I've never been retained by an insurer or asked to work or look up a case from an insurer. I recognize you have, um, even to the extent you need to generalize this, but to what extent do you see the insurers really trying to start leveraging these tools, whether it's from a valuation standpoint, just overall risk management, council selection, these kinds of things? Yeah, so I can't speak to council selection. I, I think that's all really still done just on a personal relationship. You know, we're on panels so we just exist on a rotating panel of councils that's always selected on, on certain cases. I do think that insurance companies, especially those providing legal malpractice insurance, um, potentially E&O policies, they're going to start asking at renewal time, you know, are you using AI in your practice of law? Or, or for example, I see this a lot in the insurance field. Some insurance is going AI, it's going completely automat automated. Um, so there's, for example, there's a program called Cover Wallet where you can purchase insurance just like you can purchase health insurance through the sort of online marketplace. The problem is there's no human underwriter. So there's no person serving as a stopgap there to say, hey, red flag, can you explain a little bit more about this problem? Or, you know, you say you're not a roofer and we don't insure roofers and you check the no box, but your name is A and B roofing, right? So a human underwriter would catch that and they would say, hey, I need to clarify this. Are you doing roofing? Are you not? But the AI just, it doesn't catch that stuff because it's looking at the check boxes. So you have programs where people are getting insured and then, you know, there's an incident and they're denied coverage because they didn't qualify in the first place. And who do you blame? You know, I mean, do you blame the computer? Do you blame the AI? There's people behind these programs somewhere, headquartered somewhere. And so you end up having to sue the, the underlying writer of the program. But I, I do think 
it's creating some some issues in the insurance world, both from a coverage standpoint and from a you know, risk mitigation perspective. As far as are there clients, are there lawyers using these tools responsibly? You know, do you have lawyers getting sanctioned, like we saw in New York, for right. drafting briefs that come from AI and nobody checked them? And that's something I think that you know legal professional liability insurers want to know. Yeah, that's a really good point about renewals. I think we just re-upped, and I'm curious. I don't remember seeing that prompt, but if it wasn't in this cycle, I bet you it will be in the next one. Probably next year. Curious to get your thoughts because of all your wealth of experience and in multiple jurisdictions. There are two areas of practice that have nothing to do with my firm or how I approach it that I think AI, as a general phrase, is most likely to be able to help if they find a way to do it. The first is mediation or alternative dispute resolutions. It strikes me that at the end of the day, if there was a way to feed a machine all of the meaningful briefs, including like a, you know, a persuasive piece of writing to say, this is how I interpret it, this is how I interpret it, whatever, to have a machine be able to interpret all of that, maybe analyze, you know, recent verdicts in the area, whatever it is, that's one area. The second one is to serve as a stopgap for the judges. The judges are overworked. Their caseloads are crazy. I've never been to a jurisdiction where that's not true, but they're still people. And so they really want to try hard on each case, but every time a motion is filed, there's a reply, maybe a, a a sir reply, whatever, it just becomes overwhelming. And it strikes me that, again, if we could have almost like a digital magistrate, not binding on anybody, but neither is a magistrate's R&R usually, right? You can object and go to the district court or whatever. So have you thought or seen or, you know, because you speak to people, maybe even judges about how they perceive AI working in either of those two areas? I haven't spoken to judges on this topic. I, you know, when it comes to mediation, I tend to think that there are two kinds of mediators. There's the mediators that just pass the numbers back and forth and kind of ferry the offers from room to room. And then there are mediators who are really talented at <clears throat> perceiving the fears of one party, you know, the potential big hits at trial to their reputation or to their credibility. You know, those are the things that I like to use in mediation. It's it's the facts of the case, but it's also the way I'm going to make the other side look in front of a jury. And a talented mediator can explain that directly to the client, the plaintiff, in my case, uh, explain what I, I'm going to do at trial in a way that makes them understand the risk that they're facing. And I don't know that you know having a, an algorithm kind of provide you with the right settlement number is going to replace those really talented mediators. That said, I have found that those really talented mediators are, you know, one in 10. And so could it replace a, a lot of easy mediations where the parties are not that far apart on, you know, simple contract cases? Sure. I, I think I think it could. And I, I actually think one area where it could come in really handy is sort of uh, where we use mock juries. And I, I think that mock juries are invaluable because you have real people who have real opinions and you got to actually feel the impact of certain pieces of evidence that you have long suspected will play a certain way, but you're not totally sure. I think as a first round, AI could read all the evidence in the case and provide provide you with a, you know, sort of what the everyman juror might think of it. And that could maybe take the place of mock juries for clients who can't afford to go that extra step. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I First of all, I see how that could apply and be a benefit to the people who have the resources, time, and awareness to investigate that. It's interesting you bring up mock juries or whatever people want to call them, focus grouping. At the end mm -hmm. of the day, it's all the same. You're trying to get real people who can play the part of juror but won't end up being your juror so you can get their feedback 
whether it's observing how they deliberate or getting more like traditional written form feedback when you're done. We've done that. I want to say maybe, well, we've done it probably a dozen times, but we've done it in maybe three or four different ways. And I'm curious to know what your preferred method is. Um, so like, for example, we used to very early on from because uh, costs matter, we used to just go out to Craigslist or whatever the equivalent was. And we'd literally post a, a job and you'd get a specific sliver of the general public who would even apply and be interested. We'd pay for their lunch or breakfast. They'd come in, they'd do that. We'd found it to be less reliable, still useful, but less reliable. Then we flipped it. We went like the pendulum went to the other side of the uh, spectrum. And we, we used to pay for like big data, whatever that means. These companies that claim to have aggregated or, or can rather aggregate 500 different people in more of a survey method or a thousand people spread all over the country. We put little video clips together, whatever. And we got feedback that way. Again, useful, but also hard to then appreciate. Is this really meaningful? If half these people are in Texas, does that really apply to this county in Florida or whatever? And then we've had two kind of things closer to what I think are true, which is much smaller groups still in person, but we go to a third party whose entire purpose, it seems, is to screen and filter applicants to come in that can give you as close to a real sense as possible. And the, the way they split are either John or I would play different roles, but we're still in the same firm. Or even maybe you just have somebody from an outside firm come in and look at the file and do their best. Anyway, all that being said, these are my experiences. I'm curious, what have you found to be the most useful for you as the practitioner when it's all said and done? Yeah, I agree with you. I think the last um, method, I, and I, my firm uses a couple different methods, so I'm not really sure what you know collectively would be the best. But I do think those third-party groups who, you know, that's their job to kind of collect jurors for you. Those are really effective. Personally, I try critical issues to my husband. Um, he is not a lawyer, and I think that's really important. Um, doesn't you know? He doesn't really know much about the law except for what he's learned through me. So there's no preconceived notions, which is what you get with a jury. You know, you get this blank slate. So if I have a key issue and I'm kind of wondering how it will break in a case, I'll actually do my little presentation of the evidence with him and see what his thoughts are. And then I actually go out from there and, and pre-try it to other family members, because I think they are more representative of a jury, just having different qualifications and different backgrounds. And I get, I've, I've gotten such really in, incredible good feedback on how a piece of evidence will show and will play uh, from people who don't know anything about it, as opposed to trying it to your, you know, your, your co-counsels and your partners in your firm who they think about it the same way you do, right? Yeah, that's just echo chamber. That's, that's the strength of your own is. ego. You know, yeah. But so I, I like to get the friends and family. I think you're right with friends and family because those that truly care about you, love you, they want you to do well. They're going to give you honest feedback at the end of the day, yeah. including like this. Just doesn't even make sense to me. Something you might be taking oh, yeah. that just goes over their head. Um, can we talk a little bit about the new? I'm like very curious about this. One of one of my favorite things of being a trial lawyer is inevitably I'm going to have to show up to a courthouse, and it's not always the same one. Yes, I've been in a few, a lot more than others. But anytime I get an opportunity to travel to a new venue to try a case, I love it, even though on some level, I can argue it always feels like I'm being out of town just a little bit, whether it's through the court staff or not, or whether it's just my own you know, perception of things that aren't really true. But you've now practiced in multiple states, different venues. So can you talk a little bit about your experience in California specifically? And let's just focus on trial. I've heard, although have not verified, that in a lot of particular uh, jurisdictions of California, the court day ends at like four o'clock or something and trials yeah. might extend weeks that otherwise maybe could have been done in five days. Is there any truth to this or is it all the rumor mill here? 
It is, in my experience, 100% true. I have to say, you know, a shout out to the San Diego legal community. I think it's a wonderful community. It's tight knit. It's close. Um, people are very professional, very respectful. You, it's a city of some 8 million people, but somehow you seem to know who all the, you know, major lawyers are in town and everybody kind of knows everybody. And so in that sense, I love practicing in San Diego. I love knowing my opposing counsels and having good relationships with them. I think that's great. We have tremendous judges, you know, no complaints there. Um, my last trial was nine weeks. Um, it could have been done in two. I think, uh, you know, all of our cases get set out for kind of a minimum of two weeks and most of them stretch on and on. My partner was in trial in June and it was supposed to be two weeks and it ended up being, you know, six or seven. That is really common. And our, our court days are frustrating. We start at 930 usually, and then uh, there's a mid-morning break at 10.30 or 10.45. Then you take lunch from 12 to 1.30, and then there's an afternoon break at three, and then the day stops at four. So you get about five hours of testimony in any given day, and uh, it's just not enough to, to really move a case along. It's obviously it's disjointed, and I'm sure it's easier to find like gripes with what it seems like inefficiencies there. But for me, it's fascinating, because, not the duration. In fact, I have to keep my voice down. If Jill hears me, she'll sign divorce papers. Don't <laughs> worry, we're not moving to California. Which is <laughs> but to me, it's like very exciting to think, okay, how can I be persuasive in these little snippets? Whereas in Florida, for example, I'm accustomed to being in that courtroom from 8 a.m. till sometimes six, but often just five with very little breaks. And so you're almost always on display. You're almost always in the batter's box ready to swing. There's rarely a, a lull of like three, four hours straight where you know you're not going to be on call. So has that kind of affected your approach to how you try a case, whether it's let's call this witness on this day because we know we can get him or her out quickly versus this one's going to drag for three days, et cetera? Yeah, witnesses are frequently taken out of order, uh, which I find incredibly frustrating. I think a trial should proceed in an orderly fashion, one witness at a time, finishing each witness as you go. Um, so we will often have you know, an expert will come testify at 10, 15, they'll testify and then we'll pick up with the witness that we left off with before. Then you get, um, we're dark on Fridays. That's the other thing. So San Diego trial court doesn't go on Fridays. So you have Monday through Thursday. Also, you don't have court holidays or federal holidays. So you get three to four trial days a week, five to six hours a day. And yeah, I mean, you end up sending jurors home in the middle of somebody's testimony. So they go sleep on it. So actually we do put a lot of thought into you know, okay, who can we put on Thursday at, after lunch um, so that the jury will go home and think about their testimony all weekend? Or when it's my client who may, who might be up next, and we never know. So we get 24 hours notice if you're lucky of who's going to be put next. So you never know as your trial is going on, you know, you go there in the morning and if you're lucky, the judge will ask the other side to say who they intend to call in the morning. So you, you just don't know. But when it when it might be my client, I think to myself, well, how can we push them so that maybe they start Thursday at three, they get two hours or one hour, just a little taste of it, and then we can work on it all weekend long, right? Then I can go back and work with them on their testimony, and then they start again on, on Monday. Um, and of course, the other side's trying not to do that. They're trying to finish with a witness so everybody goes home on Thursday or, and you know doesn't think about the case over the weekend. Well, there's there's a part of me that feels like my legal career will never be complete if I haven't had a nine week trial, maybe even in San Diego. So I'm going to have to put my thinking cap on and see if I can't find a case with a colleague who's interested to have me. Let me ask you this. So in, in, in my practice, I think I've gotten so 
uh, used to doing this particular thing that I'm about to mention that I, I take it for granted that everybody does. And then every time I go to trial, I meet somebody else who's like, oh, really? You do that? Which is I video record every deposition because I hate it gives me like hives to think about my witness will at the last minute be unavailable or I told them I'd get them in within this window on Tuesday. Next thing you know, it's pushed to Thursday and they can't make it. So I always like to have a nice professional video synced up that I can put play, press play on. Obviously, the downside is they're not there live. It might be less persuasive. Might not, you know, you can't just play video after video. But is that permitted in California? And then if so, do you do you go into trials with that as a backup plan? Yeah. So my I had a trial in March of 2020, and it was the I believe the last jury trial in San Diego before COVID uh, shut everything down. And we had a witness who was. Um, Central California, and we asked if we could have the witness testify uh, remotely. I know this is not exactly your question, but it goes with it. And um, the judge was very excited by that and thought, like, what a great development. And so we did it, and it was a whole production. We had to bring in all this equipment. We had a witness testify remotely. Now it's commonplace. So now we get, we actually have entire trials that are remote now, which is crazy to me. It's, you know, handling evidence is very difficult remotely, but we have entire trials. Um, we do, yes, California allows uh, testimony by deposition. It's like the federal rules if the witness is unavailable. So if they're out of state or if they're incapacitated of some kind, you can use the deposition for impeachment uh, for any purpose like that. Um, you can use a declaration if somebody's you know unavailable under the under the rules. But I, I also like the um, the old school way when you bring in one of your associates to read the deposition. Oh, yeah. I got to do that once and I thought it was so fun to like play another character and read the deposition and try to read it in the way that the witness would have said. So I've, I've played the part the too. John yeah. and I have played that. We've danced that tango numerous times. I feel like mostly him is the, the witness. I think he enjoys that bit of the acting. But I always yeah. tell him like, don't oversell it here, man. You know, you're not going to get an Emmy at the end of the day. You just need to read it as it is. Um, <laughs> as we kind of bring this thing down for landing, I want to be respectful of your time, but as someone who has been working remotely, uh, and I, I do the same, even though I live in Atlanta, Georgia, more than half my cases are still in Florida. And one of the benefits of the changes that the pandemic forced upon the legal system is that remote proceedings are understood to be customary and, and almost the norm. And I like them for everything, including through exhibits and the record. But obviously, I don't like it for trial. That being said, it's a personal thing for me. I get to stay home more with my wife and kids, which is great. Cut down on travel. It's obviously less time going back and forth and less stress. And I also think I'm able to capture the judge's attention more than I used to when I would have to show up to a courthouse and I was one of maybe two or three hearings that afternoon. You kind of never knew when you were going to go. The judge was like, hurry up, let's get done. Whereas I think when it's like you start on time and you end on time remotely. Anyway, I see a tremendous upside. How about for you? Obviously, there's the convenience of cutting down travel, but from an advocacy standpoint, do you feel like your capacity to deliver a good argument is diminished at all or increased, enhanced? I still really do prefer taking depositions in person. And unfortunately, it's just not a practical response for me. I do fly to California to take and defend depositions on a fairly regular basis, but I can't do it for everyone. And I think there's something 
really impactful about just passing a deposition across or a, an exhibit across the table and pointing to a specific point and watching the witness try to read it and understand it and, and watching the body language, which you can see on the screen, but it's just different being in the room with somebody. So I do think that remote depositions lose a little bit of, uh, of, of the same oomph that they had uh, in person. I do like court hearings remotely. I think the judges pay great attention. They, you know, they have this big screen and they see you right in front of them. So you're actually closer than, you know, standing in the well. Our courtrooms are really big. So when you're standing in the in the well, you're pretty far from the judge. So I like being able to, you know, be really right in front of the judge and speaking like that. Um, I do think they give a lot of good attention to people who are appearing remotely. I think it's a great value add for clients. It's so much more efficient because I used to charge clients to drive downtown, sit in the courtroom, sit for maybe two hours while 30 other people got called. And then I'd give my five minute argument and then I would drive back. And so it's like a four hour bill for, you know, 15 minutes worth of work. And so now I can charge my clients for the actual time of the hearing, which is just from turn on to turn off, right? Which I think is great. Yeah, um, I, I, think, I think remote work is just amazing. I think it's a, a real benefit of our time. Do you, if I could peer into your firm just a little bit, I mean, I run a law firm, so I'm always curious about operational things. Does your firm um, offer, is it hybrid? Is it predominantly in person? Are you the exception to the rule? If I can yeah, we are hybrid. Um, I, I'm certainly the exception working full-time remote. We have about four attorneys across the United States who are who all started in person with our office, but eventually had to relocate and decided they wanted to stay all post-COVID. Um, most of my office does go in person. I think we have a really collegial spirit. People like being there. We have a nice office. You know, people enjoy, like we're right on the ocean and you know, we've got a nice kitchen. So everybody enjoys being there. And just talking to each other throughout the day. Um, you know, we have a lot of staff, so it's it's a pretty big office at this point. And so people do enjoy being there. Um, we give the full option for people to be remote if that's what works best for them. And really it just comes down to, you know, can you do your job as effectively and as productively from home? And if, if yes, then, you know, we don't micromanage adults. And that's one of the great things about, you know, running a law firm is staffing it full of adults who can manage themselves. Amen. I, I totally agree with that. Do you leverage any other? Now I'm just curious and then I'll let you go. Like, so for me, we're very, we lean into uh, mediums like Slack and because it has kind of a huddle, which is we're on Zoom right now, but it has a video conference and a DM and a, you know, group thread function built in, very easy to use, easy to read on mobile. Um, as the person yourself, who's not in office, are you leveraging those tools or anything like that? I'm not. I really use Zoom to connect with my associates on a regular basis and our law clerks who I also manage. <clears throat> so I use Zoom for that. And then other than that, we're sort of analog. Like I use my phone, I use my email. Um, that's really all we're doing. So I'd be interested to know what, you know, maybe offline what you like and what's working for you because we're always looking to improve the way that we connect with each other. Awesome. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Plus I want to save things in case we have you back on as a repeated guest, <laughs> which I think everybody would enjoy. So. Um, can you just tell people where they can find you to the extent that they want to reach out to you? Maybe they have a question about something you touched on today, or maybe they're looking to hire your firm. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's Pettit Cone. We're at pettitcone.com, P-E-T-T-I-T-K-O-H-N.com. Um, my direct number is best since I don't have a uh, physical office anymore. So it's 858-269-5002. And my email is cjones, C-J-O-N-E-S, at pettitcone.com. Awesome. 
All right. So for those listening live, thank you for joining in. For those listening, maybe a couple of weeks or months later, hopefully you found some value in this. Feel free to drop some comments below if you have any other topics or any other guests that you want us to bring on. But Caitlin, it's always a pleasure to see you. I'm really glad we did this. Next time we won't yeah. wait so long in between. So I know it's been me. years. I know. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. And the truth shall set you free. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Great moments are born in great opportunities.